0: We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 4 and uh, once more just reading the parable of the sower. Um, Please turn to page 1477 if you have a church Bible, Mark chapter 4, and I will read to you um, that whole passage. Jesus, it says that again he began to teach beside the sea. It's the end of a long day for him. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea. Other seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no grain and other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, hear his he is to hear, let him hear. When he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables and he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. And these are the ones set on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns, they are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world, or the anxieties of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things, enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil, are the ones who hear the word, and accept it, and bear fruit, thirtyfold, and sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. This is God's word. The Lord Jesus often is able to speak directly to the heart. And his ability to understand the heart and to diagnose its condition is one of the chief reasons why I think his teaching is regarded as second to none. And in this parable, remember the scene. He's looking out upon a crowd. And when he looks at a crowd, he doesn't just see a kind of a blending together of people uh, all with the same mind and heart and desires, he rather sees that there are different kinds of people, and it's the same this evening. For some, uh, listening to him, their hearts were, he said, like hardened paths, and it may be the same for you. Uh, you may you may have come for good reasons, and or been coming for a while to church for good reasons, but uh, whether that's a desire to engage with community, or even a desire for truth, or whatever it is, but... For some reason, the message of the Christian message is not penetrated in any way uh, beneath the surface. It, it doesn't feel like it resonates with you, and uh, there may be, it, it, you know, whatever's going on there. You may need to go away and think, and even I would encourage you to pray. I'd encourage you to ask God, what, why is it that, you know, I'm, I'm seeking you, but this thing isn't, isn't making a difference. I'm not understanding, it or it's not. It's not touching me in the way that I'd want it to. And so Jesus says, look, there's a, there's a group of people who are like that. And the sad thing is that what you're hearing will be forgotten just as quickly. And it'll be like you never came. God has a way, of course, of dealing with those people. And I was explaining this last week that he has a way of breaking up the hardened ground out of our hearts. It can be through suffering. And it's often in the most painful moments of life that suddenly a new awareness that God is speaking uh, begins to sink in. Sometimes it's just through the overwhelming experience of his kindness, his undeserved kindness. Some of you are like that. Then there was a second group he talks about. These are the people whose, whose initial response to the Christian faith and to the message of the Christian faith is one of immediate excitement and joy at what you're hearing. And uh, this is completely right and appropriate. There is no greater thing to to know and hear than that the God of the universe who made you wants to know you in personal relationship and has given an opportunity for that to happen by the gift of his son Jesus on the cross. Nothing beats it. But unfortunately, it's also true that some people whose reaction to Christ is, is in a sense impulsive and immediate can also discover that just not very long into the Christian walk, uh, you realize there was nothing, you discovered there was nothing substantial about the faith that you had. It was more based on an emotional reaction than on anything real or substantial. There was no real foundations or no roots to the thing. And, uh, Jesus talked about this on occasion when he's talking about, to groups of people who wanted to be his followers. And he said, he, he, he used, for example, in Luke 14, he used the picture of a man who wants to build a tower. And he said, if a man wants to build a tower, he'd better, first of all, Have a look and see how much money he has, how many resources he's collected, uh, whether he's able to build and to finish the project once he started it. Because he said there is nothing more humiliating than for him to lay a foundation and then realize he's run out of money. And for some people, that's exactly what their Christian life looks like. It was an initial burst of enthusiasm and then it quickly peters out into nothing. And it's usually because something about the Christian life you discover is difficult and there are many difficult aspects to living as a Christian. There are unbelievable promises of God's goodness to you, but there is a cost. There is undoubtedly a cost. And Jesus says, some of you are like that. It's tragic, but you hear what I say, and it's not going to last. And then he says, and I think this actually speaks to great swathes of people who attend churches on Sundays. He says, some of you are like thorny ground. The word of God has its impact on you and on the surface of things you look like there's fruit in your life. You look like there's growth. You look like a Christian. But the reality is the heart is so infested with distracting things, be they anxieties that could draw you to Christ but unfortunately seem to be drawing you away from Christ as you try to control your life and circumstances or the pursuit of wealth. Thinking about money, thinking about how to get more money, thinking that more money is what's needed to make you happy. Or, he says, just the desire for other things, be whatever they may be. For some people, it's the desire for romantic interest, for children, for a fulfilling career, for travel, for whatever it is. He said the desire for other things comes in and it chokes the word and it proves unfruitful. So the great question that we need to, we must ask ourselves, is what does it mean to be the good soil? This is where the parable's driving. I think Jesus is, is, the presumption is, listen, if you listen to what he's saying, there's the possibility of change in your life. And this is relevant to you if you're not a Christian, of course, obviously. Because the whole point is that the gospel is the word that's sown in your heart. And there is, you may have been unresponsive to this moment, but there is a possibility that everything changes, perhaps from even tonight. It's also relevant to those of us who are Christian because I think what Jesus was talking about here when he's diagnosing the spiritual condition of different people as he's saying it's possible for you to be living an ostensibly Christian life but also one that has no fruit. A life that has no none of the evidences of the grace of God at work in you. I want to look at what those are a little bit later. And so it it seems to me that there are a few things more important than to ask, well, Lord, what is it that you want of us? What does it mean for us to have hearts that are like the good soil? And I want to just begin by just pushing aside a few wrong conclusions on this before we can look at what the real answer is. One thing we need to push aside and dismiss is that Jesus is not, he's emphatically not talking about people whose lives are good. He's not saying the good soil are the morally good people. Look, there's all these different kinds of people and most of you are the ugly, messed up people and then there's the good soil, the good people, the decent people in whom the word of God bears fruit. That would be a complete misreading, not only of Jesus' own teaching, but of the whole of scripture. It absolutely is not what he's talking about here. Of course, it is the case that if if you've, if you're more like one of the early soils, and the word of God has had no fruit in your life to this point, of course, the reason is always because sin blocks what God is doing. Always. But that does not therefore mean that in order to be the good soil, we have to suddenly be these decent, upright people. That's not what Jesus is saying. The Bible's really clear, very clear. That there is no one who is righteous, Paul says in Romans 3. No, not one. He says all have fallen short of the glory of God. I grew up in a city in an agricultural part of England. In Hampshire. And uh, well, there wasn't much farming going on where I lived. All around the city were farms. And at certain times of year, you would smell on the breeze, just the wafting aromas of manure as it's being worked into those fields. And if I can put it like this, the Bible teaches us that the most fertile soil for the gospel is a soil that is full of crap. And friends, it's the same in your life. If, if, there's, if there's stuff in your life that needs to be dealt with, being the good soil doesn't mean being a good person. It just means that you have come to a point where you, you're desperate for Jesus to deal with you. It doesn't mean being morally good. Another thing it doesn't mean is, he's not talking about any any level of intelligence here. Because although he does say that understanding the gospel is the crucial thing for it to have an effect on your life. He does say that. But understanding the gospel is not about your intelligence quotient, your IQ. In fact, you'll agree with me on this. That as much as having a good mind is a great gift, it is possible that if you have a good mind, that's the very reason why you will not bow the knee to Jesus. We're really aware in our day and age, and it's been like this for a couple hundred years, I would say. But I suppose it's been true all through the history of mankind that often there's a certain intellectual elitism which dismisses faith. And regards faith and the supernatural and miracles and belief in God. And associates these things as being primitive. And therefore, actually in a very prejudiced way, dismisses these things before even giving them due consideration. Now one thing that I can say is that I don't think whether you do or do not accept what God has to say to you has anything to do with how intelligent you are. And it seems to me that whilst there are extremely capable people who very stupidly reject what God has to say. There are also very, very intelligent people who believe this stuff, and it's got nothing to do with how smart you are. One of the great minds of the, um, the last century was, a, was a, a theologian called Karl Barth. He wrote incredible number of words, which doesn't in and of itself mean that you're smart. My daughter talks a lot, and I don't know <laughs> that she's particularly well-educated at this stage. But, but he, was a, he was an incredible mind. But when asked, what was, how would he summarize the message of the Bible? He just replied, after thinking for a moment, he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And it's like all of the weight of the tomes he'd written on one side was all basically just trying to tell that little ditty, that little story. And it seems to me that some people dismiss the Christian faith um, for, for poor reasons. But what Christ really wants is for you, it's a matter of heart whether you accept these things or not. It's not a matter of intellect, whether you do or do not regard yourself as smart. None of that's got anything to do with it. Whether you understand the gospel, to use Jesus' own expression, is much more a matter of the state of your heart than of anything else. I also don't think that it has anything to do with your background. I'll just say this last of all. Um, It's true that at certain moments in locations or among certain people groups or times in history, you see a certain openness to the gospel. Well, you know, I've got friends who lead churches down in Southeast Asia, and it's an extraordinary thing to see these churches booming and growing as many, many, many people are, are accepting that the Lord Jesus Christ is their Savior. There's a, there's a wonderful openness to the gospel in parts of Southeast Asia right now, and I just praise God for it. But, 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 when Jesus is talking about these categories of people, these categories transcend all All natural barriers. Among every people group, there are people like the path, like the shallow soil, like the thorny ground, and like the the good soil. And that's both a negative thing and a positive thing. And positively, it just means this there is absolutely no natural barrier to the gospel penetrating your heart in greater depth or you maturing more in Christ if you're already a believer. I don't care. What background you're from. I don't care what sexuality you are. I don't care what what race or education or any of those things. None of that matters. When Jesus gets a hold of you, when he gets a hold of you, he'll do what he promises to do in your life. So, what is it then? What is it then? And the answer Jesus gives is that it is all about your ability to hear. The people who not only believe in Jesus, but also who experience the maturing and growth and ultimate fruitfulness of God's work in their life are the people who learn to listen. You remember how after he told the parable and he was in the boat, he didn't offer the explanation to the crowd. He ended on this line. He said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. That was the mic drop moment left the boat, walked off the stage. That's what he wanted to leave people with. Are you listening? He asked. It actually becomes really clear, by the way, that this is the thing. This is the thing which distinguishes the good soil. When you, uh, when you look at the words he uses in the Greek, he, he uses this word for hearing in different tenses. When he's talking about the first three soils... He uses a past simple tense called an aorist tense. He says, you know, the first soil heard the word and then it was snatched away. The second soil heard the word. The third soil heard the word. It's a past tense. When he talks about the good soil, he uses a present tense, which often in Greek has this feeling of being ongoing and continuous and right now. He says the good soil hears the word and bears fruit. It goes on hearing the word. There's an openness an acceptance, a currentness to your spiritual engagement with what God is saying to you right now that continues to bring about growth and fruitfulness in your life. That is the thing which makes the difference, he's saying. You ask yourself, why is that such a key thing for Jesus, whether you're hearing or not with your spiritual ears? And the answer is that this is the chief way that God brings about his purposes in us and in creation. It is always through him speaking. You think this is how God works. You read your Bible. The first thing he does is he speaks. And creation is born. So no wonder. We were taught from page one and yet we missed this. No wonder that God mediates his grace to us. His power to us. His transforming power to us through his spoken word. This is why he left us with a book. This is why he appoints people to be preachers and communicators of his word. Now, some of you might push back on that. Think, well, listen, I, I look at my own spiritual life and I can see all kinds of other influences on me. Not just God's word, not just God speaking. I can think about people who've affected me and discipled me and helped me to know more about Jesus. I can think about encounters I've had with God by His Spirit. I can think about circumstances in which God has taught me things, in which I've grown and been changed and transformed. And I agree with all of that. All of that is true. But all those things only change you when it's working in concert with the Word of God at the same time. You think about the people in your life who have influenced you. you know, for those of us who are Christians, most of our maturity is because we walked with other people Even informally, at moments in our Christian life, people influence us. It's parents, it's friends, it's older brothers and sisters in Christ, it's pastors, it's all kinds of people. But what was it about them that changed you? Of course, it was their ability to bring, to bridge the word of God, which may have seemed so distant to you. Bridge it and bring it to your heart. Apply it to your circumstances. Speak it into your life, even if you weren't aware that that's what they were doing. It's always through the word of God. When you encounter God's spirit and he works in you in a very direct way, and sometimes some of you can think back to incredible moments when God has been doing things in you. What's the spirit doing? He is always inevitably doing heart surgery to open up the opportunity for the word of God to work in your life. We can go on. It's always through the word of God that God works in you. Now, let me just show you, because some of you may still need to be convinced of this fact. Let me just show you a few passages which just underline this. In 1 Peter, Peter's reflecting among many converts, he's reflecting with a number of converts in various churches about their own experience of coming to believe in Jesus. And he says, you've been born again. Remember, this this is the expression of what it means to have the miraculous experience of coming to know Jesus. You've been born again, he says. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And he goes on to say that the word of the Lord remains forever. He's saying that all the miraculous experience of God's power at work in your life has been because of the potential that was built in, that dynamic power that was built in to the message which you received and understood about who he is. His love for you and the gift of his son for you. Over in Ephesians 5 is another passage. When, G, when Paul is talking about Christ's love for his bride, the church. And he talks about his passion to make her pure. Now we look at the church. All around us and we look at our own lives and we realize that the church is a very mixed thing there's there's wonderful and attractive aspects of what the church is when i talk about it as a global thing but there's also so much progress that needs to happen and you ask well how what hope is there that jesus will get the bride that he wants on the last day and paul just tells us That this is Christ's power at work. He says that he is sanctifying her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That Jesus is unleashing his word on his church day in, day out to keep washing, scrubbing, cleaning, purifying her. It's the word of God which changes and transforms us and makes us more like him. The image of the sower. He just keeps sowing, keeps sowing. Let me read you one last verse. It just brings this home. In Hebrews 4, he says, The Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two edged sword. It's piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning of thoughts and intentions of the heart. He's saying that the Word of God can divide things that otherwise do not get divided. Soul and spirit. I mean, they're basically the same thing. Joints and marrow. He's saying the word of God has a a scalpel-like precision that it can come in and get into the places that nothing else can touch in your life. And bring about not only a diagnosis and exposure of what's going wrong in your life, but also bring the balm and the healing of God's grace and of his power and of the gospel to bring about change in you. We could go on reading this So many passages like this in the Bible that affirm the way that God works is through the constant um, ministry of his word to your heart. But I want to ask, what does this mean for us? And I think the question really we should be asking, well, if we want to be like the good soil is, how do we hear him better? And of course, there's there's a very long answer to that question, but I only want to give you a few thoughts at this stage. I think, first of all, I want to say to you that exposure matters. Being exposed to the word of God in a regular, constant, ongoing way. Now, I don't think that this in and of itself is enough to produce change in you. Some of you, you know, my experience is sometimes my wife will send me out with a list of things to go and buy from the shops. And I am exposed as I walk through, you know, it's always at the entrance, isn't it? I'm exposed to the salad aisle. And just being merely exposed to the salad aisle does not mean that the salad has any influence on me whatsoever. I don't feel even remotely tempted to buy bunches of lettuce. And I just don't have a real love for this stuff. And the reality is you can, have ex- you can be exposed to all kinds of things in your life that have no influence upon you. But you think about this in reverse. If there is no opportunity or not an ongoing regular opportunity for you to be impacted by, and ultimately changed by the word of God, then that change will not happen in your life. Jesus compared God's word to being like food. And I think that's a really rich metaphor. Because you think how weird it would be if at the beginning of the year, you stocked up with all the food you need for that coming year, maybe because of Brexit looming or whatever it is, but you stocked up with all the thousands of calories you think you need and then you set about eating your way through it for the next four, five, six days until you'd done your quota of eating for the whole year. You'd probably die, but just, just bear with me for a moment. The reality is that that's not how it works, is it? What, what happens on a normal daily basis, you wake up hungry, you have a little bit of, to eat, and if you're me, you reach mid-morning, you have a bit more to eat. <laughs> and, you know, then you reach lunch and then you have a bit more to eat. You feel hungry mid-afternoon, then evening meal and maybe a snack before bedtime. I'm just revealing my habits to you, okay? <laughs> but um, it's the kind of, it's the, the, the regular exposure, isn't it? Exposure to God's word that causes people to grow and to mature into Christ-like uh, faith and stature in him. It's not through kind of the once-a-year binge eating. It's the drip feed that God ministers to you in your daily reading. Maybe you just read a few verses a day, but you think on them. Maybe you read a few chapters a day of God's word. Maybe you listen to a helpful podcast that teaches you the Bible. Maybe you're one of those few people who attends church regularly. (laughs) Maybe you come to your life group and you, you open up the Bible and you're serious. You bring your own copy of the Bible to life group. And you actually open it for the Bible study. Wow, that would be a wondrous thing if that actually happened, wouldn't it? And so, exposure to God's word. Exposure, exposure. Another thing is, I would say, the Bible shows us that those who, are, who hear well are, are not merely listening, but there is also a desire to meditate upon what God is saying. I think that this is sort of built into what Jesus is saying in the parable here, that the good soil is soil that has depth that it kind of receives the word of God and, and holds on to it. And the, the idea, the picture that you get when you're reading the Bible is that this is, this is the person who, who doesn't just hear what God is saying, but who, who chews on it, who thinks about it, who wants to understand it and wants to know the mind and the heart of God, the God who spoke it. Psalm one is the, for me the ultimate, the ultimate um, exaltation and picture of what this should look like in the life of the believer. Because he says, on the one hand, there's, there's all these people who he calls, the the, the wicked who, or, or the person who's actually just a fool. He says he he doesn't walk in, uh, so he stands in the way of sinners, sits in the seat of scoffers, and there's this, this person whose life is just like chaff. He says you're very lightweight. There's nothing really, there's no spiritual weight to you because most of your time most of your, your, your mind is consumed with the, with, the, with, the, with the things that people around you are consumed with. And you're not around people who are helpful to you spiritually. And then he says, now look at this other person. He says that there's the, the person who is, whose delight is in God's word and God's law. And he, he meditates, he says, on it day and night. And remember that in the Hebrew, this idea of meditating... Was nothing like uh, the, the transcendental meditation that comes from from uh, from Buddhism and other Eastern religions, in which often involves the emptying of your mind. But rather, Hebrew understanding of meditation is related to the word to muttering, just muttering something. And it's the idea that you know how when you're just going about your day and no one's watching, sometimes you just talk to yourself. Is it just me? I don't know. But anyway, you talk, you, you just you process things in your mouth and as, you, as you, t- you think it through. That's meditating. You think, I, c- I don't know how to meditate. Yes, you do. You do it all day long. The only difference is that when you're doing what this psalm is recommending, you're choosing what you're meditating on. You're not just passively meditating on whatever happens to be bouncing around in your brain at that time. You know, what someone said to you that you know, or, or what your boss said to you or what you read in an email or what someone texted you or whatever. You're not, you're not just passively meditating, but rather you are seizing onto the Word of God and allowing it, working it into your heart, allowing it to have its effect, allowing it to shape the way you think. There's this exposure. There's this attention and meditation. And then ultimately also there has to be this obedience and repentance. Friends, I've got to emphasize this because One of the things you see in Scripture is that when God is speaking and someone isn't really listening, eventually he stops speaking. And there are many people who actually put themselves in a worse position because than, than those who've never heard God speak because they They're part of a church. They're regularly exposed to the preaching of God's word. They're regularly being convicted. And the spirit is is clearly speaking to you about some specific ways in which you need to repent of sin. You need to obey God. You need to turn your life to him. You need to obey. And yet the refusal to submit hardens you and hardens you and hardens you so that you train yourself not to listen anymore. As a parent, I'm very conscious that that is a potential dynamic in how I relate to my children. That it's possible that I could even enforce the idea that they don't really need to listen to me if I just keep speaking and speaking and saying the same instructions again and again with no repercussions to the fact that they didn't obey me the first or second time. So I have to, I have to get a hold of them. I have to get their attention. Sometimes I have to grab my daughter. She's only three, turning on four soon. I have to grab her by the face and. Gently, of course. And I I just, I cup her face in my hands and I turn her face towards me and I say, look at my eyes, look at me. And even then, as I'm holding her face, you see her eyes darting from side to side, (laughs) desperately trying to avoid the confrontation of, okay, I need to listen to what you're saying at this point. Sometimes that could be like you. It's like the word of God is constantly going all around you and over you and, and you're hearing it all the time, but really you're paying no attention whatsoever And the father, maybe even this evening, is just saying, just listen to me. This could have changed the direction of your whole life, child. The life you live from this point on might be a life that's wasted. And it would break my heart as a father to you. Listen to me. I've been telling you to... Turn away from this thing. Do it now. I've been calling you to obey me in this. Now is the time. And friend, as you learn to obey the Lord in this way, the word of God becomes more and more a delight to you. It's as you feed and act and then feed some more and act upon what you're hearing, that you grow stronger, that there's... Strength that comes to your spiritual muscles and your stature changes. Energy surges through your limbs in a spiritual sense and you, you begin to bear fruit in your life like Jesus is talking about. You don't want to be the spiritual equivalent of somebody who has unhealthy eating habits and remains flattened and ineffectual for the rest of their Christian life. When you become like the good soil, what does Jesus accomplish in you? I think he brings about fruit in all kinds of ways, but the New Testament tells us And he uses the language of fruit in various ways all through the the New Testament. But three ways really stand out as being the answer to this question. What Jesus meant. You know, when he said that that there'll be 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold in your life. He was using numbers that any farmer would know were utterly outlandish. He was using exaggeration way beyond any yield that's ever possible when you sow grain in your field. And he was trying to make a point, I believe. God can do more than you ask or imagine in and through your life when you're a person who is married to the Word of God, when you allow it to have its impact upon you, when you're growing in Him. when you want to be that kind of person? Well, what does He bring about in you? Let me show you a few things. First of all, He brings about internal fruit. In other words... God has a desire and a plan to change your life. People these days are obsessed somewhat with the idea of personal change and personal improvement. And uh, I don't know exactly why now of all times that's such an obsession, but it's very prevalent, isn't it? And it can, it can lead to different reactions in, in your life. On the one hand, it can cause you to sink into a pit of introspection and, and you know, what you call navel-gazing, where every day you feel rubbish about yourself. It's amazing how widespread that sensation is. You, know, you read blogs, you read people's own stories of, you know, what drives them in life. And lots of people just say, look, I just every day felt like I needed to do more. I felt like I hadn't justified my existence. And that might be you. And then there's a backlash to that where people just say, no, 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 what, what you need to do, friend? You just need, to, you just need to, to love yourself a bit more and accept yourself for who you are. When I was reading for the, um, the, the talk on anxiety, I read this secular book about anxiety, and the author, um, she, uh, she commends this. She says that here's an exercise you can do to boost your, your self-esteem. And she says, you should look in the mirror. And look at yourself like you're looking at someone else. Or like you're you're someone else looking at yourself, I should say. And you say, feel with their heart. Hear with their ears. See the things that they see in you. Your smile. Your amazing sense of humor. Your unique style. (laughs) Your, where where am I? Your beautiful mind and the quirks that make you the gorgeous, lovable woman that you are. And I'm all for that, you know. But... Actually, when I, when I reflect on this, I, time and time again, I'm overwhelmed at the wisdom of God and his way of changing our lives through the gospel. Because it avoids all the mess of what we've been talking about. On the one hand, yes, he humbles you to the ground. You look at your own life and think, there's so much mess in me. But God has opened a way for you to present that before him and lay it all out in confession at the foot of the cross. And for him to take it all up and say, look, it's on, it's on my son, it's not on you. And then with that, to bring waves of his kindness and affirmation and his fatherly, tender word to you to say, I love you. You're my child. I forgive you. I'm changing you. And to know the love of God is, of course, far greater and more transforming than To look in the mirror and tell yourself how wonderful you really are. Now understand for some people that's the only place they're going to get any affirmation. And it's probably better than nothing. But it's immeasurably greater to have the affirmation of a father who loves you. And as God's this word of God begins to change you, the Bible, the New Testament tells us that the gospel brings about the fruit of of transformation in your life. In in Galatians 5, Paul talks about this as the fruit of the Spirit. And we're not talking here about mere behavioral change, just dealing with bad habits, improving your, your daily routines, or whatever those kinds of things you might be interested in. We're talking about the transformation of your very heart, who you are on the inside. This is what Jesus is promising for you when you live under his word. He wants to change your life from the inside out. Sometimes that happens really quickly. It's been an incredible thing over the years, from time to time, to see people be like the good soil, receive the gospel, and to see a a rapid transformation of who they are as this inner fruit begins, almost overnight, begins to, to appear. It's an extraordinary thing. you ever seen deserts that can bloom when the rains fall? And overnight you'll have plants and flowers all over the desert floor. Some people, often, lives can be like that when the gospel rains down upon you. And Jackie Jackie Hill Perry, who's um, a gay uh, African-American lady who um, has written something of her story in this book, Gay Girl, Good God, and uh, she, she talks about this overnight transformation that happened in her. She says, and this is just after she's come to faith, she says, I arrived at work the next day, a new creature. Though my soul was much different, my clothes were the same. My extra large uniform with its dark blue button up and oversized black dickies didn't feel normal anymore. I don't know what dickies are, but please someone tell me later. She said, my best friend and co-worker Mike looked at me and said, you look different. What you mean? Sorry, I was supposed to say that like a <laughs> African-American lady. I don't quite have the lingo. But anyway, what, what you mean? Um, I said, considering the fact that my boxes were still showing and my chest was flattened by an extra small sports bra, I don't know, man, you look brighter. Maybe he noticed that the veil had been removed, but didn't know what to call it. She's echoing the language of what Paul says. When anyone turns to Christ, the veil is removed. They see him. And then they begin to reflect something of his brightness. His outshining of his character becomes reflected in you. And she wasn't even conscious of what she was doing different. The internal fruit happened in, overnight in her life. Sometimes it's much slower, of course. And there are aspects of Christian maturity that just seem to take an age. Age. And that can be disheartening. I liken it to swimming in the ocean. You ever swum in the sea? It's a bizarre experience because it, seems, it doesn't seem to matter how much energy you exert. You feel like you're going absolutely nowhere and you suspect you might be going backwards. And you only begin to see how far you've moved when you, you look at a fixed object on the shore. And then you say, ah, I've come some way. And it's like that in the Christian life, on your daily experience of exposing yourself to God's word, of meditating on it, and of wanting and desiring, hungering for change in, in the Christian life. It may feel like nothing's happening sometimes. And that's the word for you if you've been walking with Jesus for years. But then you look back. You look at where you were six months ago, a year ago, six years ago. Decades ago, maybe, if you came to faith back then. And you look how far you've come. And all the beautiful fruit God's brought out in your life. Some of it's internal. There's also external fruit. Just briefly on this. Our generation is famed for the desire to impact and change the world. And sometimes gets criticized for that. Because of all the millennial angst that goes with it. And all the paralysis of choice. And what should I do with my life? And I need to make my life count. And you know, we're the first generation possibly that conceivably could do almost anything if you set your mind to it. Such are the opportunities in front of you. And it's an interesting place to be. But in many ways, it resonates with what happens in the mind of a person who comes to know Jesus. Suddenly, the possibilities are opened. Because... Part of the gospel message is not just that God saves you so that you'll be with him in eternity. He saves you so as to make you useful for him in the here and now. This is expressed in different ways throughout the New Testament. In Ephesians 2, where Paul is explaining the wonder of what it is to be saved by grace and not by works. In other words, by the grace the action, the gift of God moving toward you to rescue you from the pit and not by your ability to climb out of it because you had none. And then he brings it to this conclusion. He says, we're his workmanship. We're made, built, constructed by him, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, the God who knew you from before you were born destined you to walk a certain path of service to him when you became a Christian. That is a fruitfulness. It doesn't necessarily mean that he desires you to have your name in lights like every millennial desires and wants, to change the world in ways that everyone can see. But what it rather means is that God is restoring to you the original purpose for which you were created, which was to be an ambassador through whom he could exercise his rule in every sphere of influence and dominion which Christ has put you. And For some people that means being placed on high. You read the stories of Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis or of Daniel and how God plucks them from nowhere and puts them in positions of influence. They didn't choose it for themselves. God put them there for those specific good works to help govern empires. But sometimes the Christian life is about understanding that the good works God has called you are the weirdly small mundane things that seem pointless but can be done for the glory of god when no one's looking and all the stuff which people around us maybe you would have thought were a waste of your time and talents and abilities suddenly are invested with great dignity when you realize god has called me to these good works less relevant to you guys this evening but i was using this morning the example of a mother of young children i've no firsthand witnessed the frustration and spoken with mothers about this where the days can seem so futile doing the same thing again and again Cleaning the same bum that just seems to get dirty again, and the same clothes, and doing the same piles of laundry, and you know, and it all just seems an endless cycle that seems so worthless because it all just has to happen again the next day. And what I'm saying to you, listen, friends, is that part of the good fruit that God wants to bring about in your life is. The understanding, the recognition that when things like this are done for the glory of God, they're invested with an eternal significance. And He has pleasure. He smiles upon hearts and lives that are given in service to Him. That's a wonderful thing. It helps pluck out from your heart the wrong sense of avarice and ambition that can so corrupt that heart. Is it right to desire to do something for God? Yes, I believe it is. But it, it must be for God and not for yourself. When it's for you, it's corrupting. It feeds pride. But when it's for him, oh, the Lord smiles upon that. He loves that. My last, my last point on this, last point of all, I should say, Is that Christ wants to bring about, through your life, eternal fruit. And of course the things I've been mentioning are eternal in scope. Transformation of your life. The good works God calls you to. But what I mean specifically here, I think we cannot miss the fact that part of what God has ordained for us when we are like the good soil is that there's a multiplying effect that happens. That we spread the gospel to other people around us. And I'm not talking here... About the pressure as Christians to be evangelists, because even to speak like that strikes terror into the heart of most Christians, doesn't it? What I'm talking about is the inevitability that the more you love Jesus and love His Word, the more it's just going to come out of you. Thank you, Jeremy. Let me just use a last example of this before I close. What I'm trying to explain to you is this. That those who are like the good soil are those who hear the word. Those who hear the word are those who receive it. And it brings about transformation of their life. And as that happens, you become somebody who spreads. That there's a multiplying effect. That the gospel begins to influence people all around you partly through the transformation of your life and the conduct, partly through the things you say, the reformed mind that you have. One of the beautiful examples of this in the book of Acts is the Jerusalem church, the first church that ever existed. And what we learn about them in the early days is the Holy Spirit was at work among them in extraordinary ways, is that they were so hungry for God's word. It tells us at the end of Acts 2 that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And they had this habit of meeting in the temple on a weekly basis and in homes on a daily basis so that they could be taught and learn more about Christ. Now what does God do with a bunch of Christians who are maturing and maturing and maturing and maturing but going nowhere in that great big overgrown Jerusalem church? I'll tell you what he does. He brings down the hammer in Acts chapter 8 through a man called Saul and his like in other words people who hated and despised the church and as the hammer comes down the church is dispersed persecution breaks out and the Christians in Jerusalem flee and at first you think wow this is, this is absolutely tragic and then you think no this is absolutely God ordained because what do you do if you want to see the seed spread you've got to scatter the thing right I once picked up a dandelion with its seeds all ready to just be blown in the wind. I was with my dad as a kid and I just picked the thing up and went, blew it. And he was like, Now try and go and get all those back, and bring them back. And he was just trying to teach me a little lesson. This is what seed does it just spreads. There's, no, there's no, no possibility of recalling that action. And when God blew on the dandelion of the Jerusalem church and just dispersed it, do you know what happened? The ordinary believers, not the apostles, the ordinary believers began to experience a fruitfulness in their mission in evangelism, in the sharing of the gospel, that churches began to be born in the regions surrounding, most notably the Antioch church. We're told that these believers, these ordinary Christians, these Christians like you and me, went to Antioch and began sharing the gospel, some of them with the Jews, some of them with the Greeks. And suddenly, this extraordinary church in Antioch was born. It was a church that then influenced the whole, the whole empire, actually. Wouldn't you like to be that kind of Christian? Wouldn't you love it if your life is not wrapped up with the temporary things of this world in such a way that suffocates and chokes off God's work in your life. Wouldn't you love it if in eternity you can look back and see the lives that you impacted for Jesus because the word in you had to get out? As Jeremiah said, it was like a fire shut up in my bones and I could not hold it in. Is there any greater privilege than that? Any higher call? I believe this is what Jesus desires for his people. So are you listening? Is your heart supple and soft and receptive to what God is saying to you? Why don't you bow your head and let's pray. Father, we are we are in awe of the fact that you are the God who speaks and whose word brings about the transformation of lives. The world is different because you spoke. Through Jesus, in your people, so many in this room can look back on lives that have been absolutely transformed because your word is sown into our hearts by faithful people who went before us. Lord, we don't want to be the last in our line. We don't want to be those who fail to listen to you. We want rather to be like the soil that you as the great sower, the great farmer can work with. So we just bow our heads, our hearts to you. Pray, Lord, that you will show us what ways that we become hardened, the ways that we become distracted, the things we need to repent of, how practically we can be nourished by your word that you would create in this church a body of believers mature enough to change the world around us for your gospel and your grace and your glory disciple makers people with a radical and passionate desire for holiness And even as we take communion now, Lord, we confess our need for you. Thank you, Lord, that you like to work in the soil that's full of crap. But we want to be cleaned up, Lord. We want to be like Jesus. We Receive the grace of God through the bread and the wine. We imbibe it as a physical, invisible symbol of our desire to imbibe Christ himself. To consume you. To listen to you. We pray this in Jesus' name, Lord. Amen.